Welcome to the next episode of the All About Occupation series brought to you by the University of Brighton and Dr. Rebecca Twinley. This episode, the phenomenal Dr. Danielle Hitch is taking us on a bit of a journey about why we are scared of using outcome measures in occupational therapy. G'day, my name's Brock Cook and welcome to Occupied. In this podcast, we're aiming to put the occupation in occupational therapy. We explore the people, topics, theories, and underpinnings that make this profession so incredible. If you're new here, you can find all of our previous episodes and resources at OccupiedPodcast.com. But for now, let's roll the episode. So outcome measurement's crucial to proving the effectiveness of OT, but it still remains fairly scarce in a lot of areas of practice. So what's holding us back? Why is it that OTs don't get into outcome measurement? Because I firmly believe that it could be our best friend in terms of proving our worth. Not that I feel that we need to prove our worth, but it's one of the most effective ways of doing that. And I'm also going to be encouraging you in this session to think about what does it look like? What is uh, OT outcome measurement what should it look like what does it look like at the moment first of all i'd like to begin with an acknowledgement of country i'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which i work and learn the wurundjeri and Wathaurong people of the kulin nation and i pay my respects to their elders past present and emerging so what is outcome measurement and i guess i'm saying that because i'm not assuming any prior knowledge in this area. Um, And this term can mean different things to different people as well. So Boyce defined outcome measurement as the results of production processes which precede them in space time, acting on inputs in a given environment. In healthcare, they said, the term outcome usually refers to post-intervention results or measurements. The observed outcomes of an intervention whether or not one can confidently attribute those results to the preceding intervention or process. So that's a bit long-winded, but essentially it's saying that it's an outcome of something that you do with people. Rogers and Holm um, narrowed that down a bit more to OT, and as you can see on the screen, they talked about the functional consequence for the patient of the things that you've been doing with them as an OT. I also really like Unsworth's ideas about um, outcome measurement and her article was published back in 2000. You'll notice some of these references sort of getting on a bit in age, but that's fine. They're still just as relevant today as they were when they were first published. And Unsworth talks about two parts to outcome measurement. So the first part is the client change over time. But it's also linked to the change in terms of what you've how you've influenced that change. So people change all the time, people's occupations change all the time, but outcome measurement is really about capturing something that you've changed as an occupational therapist or your team has changed for that patient. So it's not change for change's sake, it's the change that's linked to occupational therapy, which is what demonstrates our effectiveness. So having those two parts of occupational therapy, outcome measurement in mind is really useful. It's not just about the change that the persons are making, it's about what your impact on that change could be. Now, this might seem blindingly obvious, but a key, key point 
oftentimes I talk to people about outcome measurement and they say, yeah, we use outcome measurements and they'll tell me what tools they use. Might be the CMOP, might be, um, sorry, the COPM, it might be the MOHO tools, could be anything. But it's actually not being used as an outcome measure because they do it at baseline, but they don't do it again at the end or at a certain time point in treatment. So it's not an outcome measure if you're only using it once. So given what I was just talking about change, it's a, a small point in terms of terminology perhaps, but you're not using an outcome measure as an outcome measure if you're only using it at baseline. So the other quote I've got there is from the College of OT. I really highly rate your College of OT. I think it's a fantastic resource. And they also emphasise it's the change that occur over time. So remember, if you're going to use an outcome measure, whichever one you select, you've got to do it at least twice. Ideally, you do it a few times as you're tracking people through um, occupational therapy if they're receiving sort of longer-term rehabilitation or something like that. So twice or more, not just once. That's not an outcome measure. And we've got to our first part of audience participation. So we know that there's a whole range of outcome measures that OT use because we have such a broad field of practice. I'd really like to hear from you guys, which ones do you use in your practice, right, as in today or, you know, this week? <laughs> which ones have you been using? Over to you. Someone's outcome measures that we use. So one of the key questions when it comes to outcome measurement is what do you want to measure? And it's important to sort of think about that as a core idea because I think in many areas of OT practice, we select tools that we use, we select the interventions we use because that's what's always been done in that particular area. That's just the assessment everyone uses or that's, you know, the treatment approach everyone uses. There's nothing necessarily wrong with that. But when you're using outcome measures, having a real think about, well, what is it that I actually want to measure? What's going to be a meaningful outcome from what I'm doing with my client is a really important way of approaching it. And it's also really important to link it to theory. Now, I know usually when I say theory, everyone rolls their eyes because we're a practical profession. We don't do theory. Theory is really, really important. Um, and it can help you think through a lot of situations where perhaps you're meeting someone that your usual little kit bag of outcome measurements, it's not really going to work for them. So just thinking about theory for a moment, there's three different levels of theory according to Kielhofner, and it's a really good way of looking at the different theories and the different ways of knowing that we access as occupational therapists, because we are magpies, we do gather ways of knowing from lots of different areas. So up the top, you've got a paradigm. So paradigms uh, present the broad assumptions and perspectives, the traditions and cultures of an area. So an example of an outcome measure that works at the paradigm level is something like the doing, being, becoming and belonging scale, which, you know, full disclosure is something that I've worked on. Um, but it doesn't look at specific occupations. It looks at doing, being, becoming, belonging, that really broad level, high sort of meta concepts. That works at the paradigm level. And then you have your conceptual practice models. So conceptual practice models are things like the CMOP and the MOHOST, um, MOHO and PEOP, things like that. So conceptual practice models are the frameworks that are unique to OT and they provide rationales, technologies and guidance for practice. 
So if you complete a COPM, you have a very particular set of data to go forward with that makes sense to an OT, makes sense to other people too, as you'll see down the track in this presentation, but it's OT specific. So you're measuring something that's very OT specific. But because occupation is such a broad concept, we also have to go to related knowledge. So that's the stuff that we borrow sort of concepts, facts, techniques and things like that that originate in other um, professions or have originated somewhere else. So we borrow them and use them. And OTs do that a lot and that's okay. That's perfectly fine. But some examples of outcome measures that are to do with related knowledge are things like range of movement, you know, biomedical, Beck's depression um, index, which is used to be fairly frequently used in mental health. I think it's been overtaken by other things, but it's pretty common. And the goal attainment scale. So putting it all together, I hope you're starting to get a bit of a flavour of the fact that OT outcome measurement is incredibly broad. And it has to be because occupation is so complex. We need to use quite a few different things to capture the outcomes that matter. And that idea of what do you want to measure is obviously a fundamental one for selecting the outcome measures that you're going to use. So choosing the wrong outcome measure can have a huge impact, obviously. Um, you may fail to capture the true benefits of what you're doing with your client. Um, you could end up you know, being misguided in terms of what clinical practices that you use with that um, consumer or that patient because you haven't actually measured the correct outcome. Um, it may be an outcome that fits in with the multidisciplinary team, but it actually doesn't mean anything to the patient. So selection's really important. So I'm a very strong believer in the idea that, you know, just doing what's always been done, because that's how we've always done it, just isn't, isn't a good way to proceed um, and because you know evidence moves on ways of doing things move on more options become available for outcome measurement all the time so if you haven't had a chance to stop and smell the roses and have a look at the outcome missions that you're using and do a bit of a review it's always a good thing to do if you've got some time it's a good quality assurance slash service development activity to do that so there are published guidelines for developing and evaluating outcome measures. There's a few of those around actually, but there's not many clear guidelines about how to select outcome measures. So the guideline or the process that I've got in front of us here on the slide um, comes from Hobart, which is a, a neurological uh, neurologist. Um, and they suggest the following framework for selecting outcomes and it has been used at Western Health, which is one of one of my two employers. Uh, and it's a four stage process. So in the first stage, you define the outcome or the variable that's most meaningful. And it actually in the framework says the most meaningful to you as a, cl a clinician. And I've added and to your client. So our clients and OTs interested in the same thing. You may think, yes, of course, because we're OTs, we're client centered. More on that later. But you know, have you asked your clients what's the most important outcome for them, almost what the most important variable is for them? And it may be different for every client. But also you've got to think about these outcomes or these variables. Are we looking at occupational ones or are they generic ones? Or are they a bit of both? So you start with the concept or the outcome 
or the variable that you're most interested in. And then the next step in the framework is to identify all the potential measures for that outcome. And again, there's a couple of things you can consider. Do you only want to use sort of OT only outcome measures, which is appropriate in some settings? Do you want to use multidisciplinary ones? Um, do you want to use a PROM, which is a patient rated outcome measure? Do you want to use a PREM, which is a patient reported experience measure? So think about things like satisfaction ratings and things like that. So my advice when you're identifying potential outcome measures is go as broad as you can, because I think when you think only in OT terms, you might miss some really good measures that are from other disciplines or other areas that actually fit your bill as well. Um, and um, God knows there's a lot of OT outcome measures out there. Everyone seems to develop a new one, but look broad. And then you really need to sit and think about what is on the outcome measure. So just because it says it measures engagement doesn't mean it measures engagement in the way that you understand it or the way that you're interested in. And this lesson I learned when I did a um, review looking at ADL measures for people with dementia. So I sat with a few colleagues, we worked through this process. And when we looked at all of the ADL measures, of which there's you know, quite a few out there, we realised that most of them had been developed from a medical or nursing background. Most of them included things that weren't actually occupations, like voiding and things like that. Most of them really were pitched at self-care. So if you were someone in the earlier stages of dementia who was still, you know, doing, looking after the grandkids, walking the dog, all that sort of thing, was they weren't relevant for you. And each of them looked at a different selection of ADLs. So just because it's saying it's measuring a particular concept, you still need to look and see, well, what are the actual questions? What are the actual outcomes it's looking at? They're all different. So if you look at some of those basic ADL scales and line them all up in a row, each of them has a different set of ADLs it's looking at. So it's really important to get right into the nuts and bolts of your outcome measure. And then, and this is something OTs do really badly, I'm sorry to say, evaluate. So stick it into practice, use it then rigorously evaluate how it performs in your practice setting. So the sorts of things you need to think about is how is it supporting my practice? How am I using the data I'm getting from that outcome measure to work with my clients? And also what's helping or hindering getting it into practice? There's lots of things that you can use to make it easier to do, use outcome measures. And there's a lot of things that some of it is OTs themselves, but sometimes it's in your practice environment that make it harder to use. And we will talk a little bit about that later. But once you've gone through all of this process, you'll have some idea of what outcome measure might be appropriate. But I'd argue there's other things as well that you really should be looking at. So these are my additions to Hobart. And as an Australian, it's really hard, really strange to be saying Hobart because that's capital of Tasmania for anyone who doesn't know. It's a bit of a weird one to be saying that as a name keep thinking about Tasmania. Um, so the other things that I think you need to also take on board when you're selecting outcome measures is philosophy and values. So I, I've been through this process a few times in my career, I realised when I was putting this together, but one of the times that I did and I actually published in the Australian Journal was when I was working in a mental health psychosocial rehab setting. So slow stream setting, people were often there for six to 12 months. And we sat down with a whole bunch of outcome measures and lined them up or had a bit of a critical analysis of how they lined up to the recovery model and whether they supported the recovery model because that was a very 
clear philosophy and set of principles that we were working to at that particular place. So if you've got an outcome measure that, you know, measures something that's important and it's a good outcome measure, whatever that might mean, but it doesn't align with the values of where you're working, it's not going to get into practice. So have a look at the principles and values at your workplace or your service setting and make sure it aligns with those or it's one of the things you should take into consideration. I think it's really important to delve in a bit to who developed this and this also came from the ADL measures for people with dementia when we discovered that most of them were developed from a nursing or medical background which explained what their content was. But has there been patient involvement in the way that outcome measure was put together or is it a bunch of health professionals have said this is what we should look at or researchers have just made up their minds. Um, I think it's a mark of quality if you've actually had patients involved in developing the outcome measure. And the reference there to something called COSMIN, that is something that's available online. You'll see once I get to the um, reference slide. The COSMIN collaboration is based in Amsterdam, I do believe, and they talk about comprehensiveness, relevance and comp comprehensibility as three really important things when it comes to an outcome measure and the only people who can really judge that are patients. So they advocate for when outcome measures are developed, these are PROMs, patient rated outcome measures, that there's a lot of um, qualitative development with consumers or patients around does it cover everything it needs to cover? Is it asking the most relevant things to their lived experience of whatever it is they're experiencing? And can I understand it? Um, some outcome measures are written in plain language, some are not. Some of them I'm not even sure what they're talking about. So development's an important thing to look into. Feasibility is, is a very obvious thing but not something that everyone thinks about. So are there elements of the outcome measure that's going to help you get it into practice? Like it's quick to do, it's available in translation, um, it's, you know, well set out, it's available in large print, whatever or things that will hinder it. So it's going to take a long time to do. I've got to pay money to get access to the forms. I have to do extra training. None of those things are things that you shouldn't do, but they might be a bit of a barrier to getting it into your practice. Have a think about that before you actually go ahead and try and use something, because whatever issues you identify, you can probably overcome. And is it standardised? I have a little bit more to say in just a minute, but what are the psychometric properties? of your outcome measure. Is it reliable? Is it valid? Is it usable? And has a nerd like me looked at how valid, reliable and usable it is? So when it comes to standardisation, people have different ideas about this particular um, concept as well. A standardised measure, it basically just means that it's got a consistent way of being applied and a consistent way of being scored. So that usually means that someone has done the research to find out about whether it's reliable, which in other words means if two different therapists did this with someone, they'd get roughly the same outcome or if the same person did it over time. And is it valid? Is it actually measuring what it says it measures? So standardised measures have a lot of benefits. Um, you know, it can you can be confident that it's going to be consistently done with people. So if you're in a setting where people may not see the same OT all the way through. Standardised measure is really useful because you can be sure that when you're using it that everyone's using it the same way. 
Um, and if the psychometric properties have been assessed, which might mean a little bit of a dive into the evidence, you'd have some confidence that actually using something that actually is measuring what it says it measures. But there are some drawbacks to standardised uh, outcome measures as well. So they can't be individualised or, you know, made more culturally relevant, for example, without invalidating the psychometric properties. So oftentimes I see with clinicians that they've got a standardised measure and they say, oh, but we've taken that question out, we've added a new question in, we changed the wording here because it doesn't make sense to us, which is all fine because that's, you know, modifying something to make it more usable. But then you can't say it's valid and reliable necessarily anymore because you've changed it. So that you have to kind of use them as is if you want to use them in a standardised way. Um, the other thing that people do often is they'll take, say, an outcome measure from stroke rehab and they'll plonk it into mental health. But if it's been validated in a stroke setting, that's where it's been validated. You don't know if it's valid in a mental health setting. So that's one of the drawbacks with standardised assessment. Unstandardised measures can be personalised to meet the needs of your client. So obviously that's a huge benefit to it. Um, and there may not be a standardised assessment available to look at what you want to look at. I'm always surprised um, when it comes to outcome measures that you think someone's come up with something for a particular occupation or a particular aspect of health and they haven't. So an unstandardised measure is perfectly fine. I'm not one of these people who says, oh, if it's not standardised, then, you know, you can't use anything. It has to be standardised. It's not very practical, especially in some areas of practice that are smaller areas of practice are a bit more specialised and where OT researchers haven't quite got their, their momentum up yet. But there is a drawback. Obviously, you can't be certain that it's valid or reliable and you can't confidently use it as an outcome measure because if you don't know if it's valid and reliable, then you don't know whether the, whatever you've gotten at baseline and whatever you get at reassessment are true indicators of that change and your impact. So you can use them and you should use them in some context, but it's really hard to make the justification for them being an outcome measure that you can have confidence in. So that's one of the, the big drawbacks of not having a standardised assessment. Keep going. All right, whoop, whoop, whoop. Controversy alert. Um, and I, I put this alarm here because I had this conversation, I've had this conversation with a few people actually, and it's, that it's not that it upsets OTs, we're too nice to be upset, but it does challenge sometimes I think the way we think. The key question here is do occupational therapy outcome measures have to be client-centred or are they client-centred? So the example I'm going to give is the COPM, and none of what I'm about to say is to, you know, diss the COPM or anything like that. I've clearly used it in practice, like I mentioned, and I think it's a really good um, OT tool. But I think sometimes OTs go, oh, we're client-centred, and it's really unique to our practice. It's not. Lots of, lots of disciplines are client-centred. Um, and they kind of use client-centred as the catch-all for everything. And it's true that a lot of what we do is very central to what, uh, our consumers or our clients want to do in life, so it is meaningful. But we don't always act in a client-centred way, if we're being really honest, sometimes because of service settings, sometimes because of service culture, and sometimes just because of our own institutionalisation when we're working in the health or social care sector. So let's have a bit of a think about client-centredness for a minute. Oopsie. So 
the things I'm going to take you through now came from a really good uh, document that came out of aged care in Australia. We've had um, an aged care Royal Commission. Um, we've also had Disability Royal Commission and a Mental Health Royal Commission in the past couple of years, really looking at person-centred care and across the nation, what does it need to look like? So there was a document put out which talked about person-centred care and it's in the, the reference um, slide at the end. And I took the information in there and came up with an outcome measure, an evaluation of person-centred care outcome measures. So it's an informal thing. I'm happy for people to use it. Um, but really, it was more like a checklist than anything else. When you're doing this process of looking at outcome measures, is it actually client-centred? And it's aligned to the principles of client-centred um, care or person-centred care. So the question is, does the chosen outcome measure enable the following things? And we've got the COPM, my assessment of the COPM on the side. So I might just see if I can move this box because you can't see. Yeah, there we go. So the first one, does it enable you to get to know the patient or client as a person? So, you know, building a relationship with them beyond their diagnosis or their functional impairment. So this is moving beyond referring to someone as, oh, the hip in bed seven, um, the stroke in bed nine or something like that, which still, still happens. So is information beyond a diagnosis or functional impairment collected? And I would say that with COPM, yeah, I mean, if you're doing the um, semi-structured interview for the COPM you know, well, you collect heaps of information beyond their diagnosis or the functional impairment that brought them to you. So it gets a tick for that. In the actual um, assessment that I've put together, it's a like it scale, but for the sake of brevity, we've got a tick here today. Sharing power and responsibility. So it's about treating your patients as partners um, and shared decision-making. So the questions is whose responses and evaluations are recorded on the outcome measure? Does it include any element of patient report? Now with the COPM, yes, it does include patient report because you ask people to rate satisfaction and performance and all of that sort of stuff. But let's face it, a COPM is done with an OT. So it's kind of OT mediated. If it's done well, then yes, it's very reflective of client-centered or person-centered practice because it is a prom. It's, it's applied as a prom. But Sometimes the conversation is led a little bit by the OTs. There is a fair bit of research in the rehabilitation space anyway that COPMs almost invariably end up reflecting self-care occupations and a bit of domestic, which makes sense because that's what you look at in rehab. But that's not necessarily patient or client-centred. Client-centred might mean that people want to look at other things in their life as well. Um, and also when we look at the COPM, you cut it down to sort of five the top five to work on, which makes sense from our point of view, but maybe the person's got 10 things to work on and we just don't look at those. So mm, it's not quite met that criteria, in my opinion. Happy to argue it out with, with you all because this is an interpreted um, finding. Accessibility. So that's about enabling patient or client choice, supporting the provision of timely, complete, accessible and accurate information. I think the COPM is fairly accessible to lay people. Um, when I did COPMs, I always showed the patient what I'd written down on the COPM and the scores and the scales and all that sort of thing. And it was one of those outcome measures that didn't take a lot of explaining. Um, it was pretty intuitive, so I gave that a tick. 
flexibility. So it's not about flexibility of the outcome measure as such. It's about enabling your clients some choice and supporting the provision of timely, complete, accessible and accurate information for decision making. So values, preferences and needs directly collected from them by this assessment. And this is where I come back to the fact that the COPM is OT mediated. It's not that the person takes a COPM away and just fills it in. It's through a discussion. So hopefully the person who's doing the COPM is being very client-centred, but I've certainly seen times when the person doing the COPM has been leading the conversation a little bit or, um, you know, someone will be talking about the scales and they'll be able to say, what do you think, it's a five or a six or something? And it's, we lead people sometimes, especially when you have a client who's got lots of things they want to look at or someone who just doesn't know where to start. So, and that's not a bad thing, but does that mean that the client values, preferences and needs are coming directly from them? Maybe, maybe not. And the last two uh, elements that I look at is coordination and integration. So how accessible are the findings to others in your team? As I say, the COPM is pretty accessible in terms of the way it's written out, but how often are COPM results shared with a team outside of OT? I have seen it done in some settings, and oftentimes it's, you know, when you do share OT assessments, it's, um, you know, it's really useful and it's taken on board. The AMPS was quite good for that when I use the AMPS because the AMPS, in a way, mimics uh, some of the more psychological assessments. You know, you have your little printout with your graph and you have your cutoff score and all that sort of stuff. Um, so it's an form that your MDT colleagues can possibly understand a bit more. But COPM is pretty translatable, I think, too. I think OTs, though, often aren't very good at sharing their findings um, with the rest of the MDT, apart from a one or two word summary that we might say in the ward round or something, or a big long report that you know nobody really reads the whole thing. We have to get better at actually communicating the outcomes of our outcome measures. And then understanding the environment. Does the assessment elicit information about the environment? If you're doing the semi-structured interview for the COPM well, you'll get lots of information about a person's environment, but you don't actually assess it in the COPM. You're looking at an occupation. Implicit in that is the environment in which the occupation is done in, but it's not necessarily what you're measuring because you're measuring performance and satisfaction there within the person themselves. So we're getting towards the end. And before I finish up, I just wanted to have a, another quick chat with you all. So whether it's the COPM or Mohost or TOMS or the GAS or anything like that, what helps you use outcome measures in practice and what hinders you? What are the barriers that you found? But don't just talk to me about barriers because everyone always goes negative. Talk to me about what helps, helps you to use outcome measures in your practice. Um, so let me just um, wrap this up. So I just had some top tips for implementation. So please don't reinvent the wheel. Oh my God, OTs do this all the time. Um, there's heaps and heaps of outcome measures out there. So, you know, put in the leg work or the Zoom work or whatever and see if there's already one out there that mostly meets your needs. You may not find the perfect outcome measure because there isn't a perfect outcome measure, but if there's one that's kind of sort of there and it meets what you need, use it. OTs are really good at reinventing the wheel. We always want to 
make a brand new measure for everything. And that's why there's 50,000 OT outcome measures when you go around and look at it. Some of them are highly, highly specialised too. Um, if you do need to design one, if there genuinely isn't anything out there that meets your needs, talk to a nerd like me um, with experience about establishing psychometric properties because it's the ideal is for it to be standardised and to have a good standardised assessment, you do need to design it in a particular way to begin with. So talk to someone like me if you need to, but ideally just use one off the shelf. Most of the ones that are available are good and can be translated into other settings. It's not enough to say it's important. So if you ask any OT, they're going to say, oh, our commission is really important, and that's true. We do need to demonstrate, um, you know, our impact on people. We need to be accountable to our patients more than anything else. But it has to be embedded if you're going to actually implement any sort of outcome measure into your policies, your processes and your workflows. So it has to be something that fits in with all the other things you guys are juggling. And that's particularly true for the reassessment. So an initial assessment is something we would all do and it's easy to slip in an outcome measure there. But you need to have some sort of structure about, well, when are we going to do this again and how are we going to remember to do it again um, to make it work as an outcome measure. Seek out accessible formats. So really good outcome measures are accessible, you know, and enable client choice. So I think we get a little bit stuck sometimes with proms, especially that we have to hand someone a pen and paper. It's a bit hard to do that, as um, previous commentator uh, mentioned, via Zoom. So can you do it online? Could they fill it out via an app? Could you do it by text message? So we've used text messages over here quite a bit during the pandemic with a little link embedded um, so that the client gets a text message, clicks on the link, and then just does their outcome measure on their smartphone without going to the hassle of designing an app or anything like that. There's lots of different ways. So be move beyond pen and paper, even though that might have been how you've been doing it for a long time. Okay. Always feed the outcomes back to your clients. To me, this is a non-negotiable and I often see that it doesn't get fed back to the clients. It's not some super you know, secret OT business. Um, you have to feed it back to your clients because they've given you information in good faith and we need to be accountable to our clients. So that might mean it has to be, well, it does mean it has to be accessible the way that you actually um, feed it back. And it holds you accountable for completing the outcome measure that second time because what's the point in doing it in the first time if you're not going to then go back to your client and hopefully say, wow, look at this, this is how much you've improved. Or, wow, look at this, you know, at the start your goal was to engage in, I don't know, playing cricket, and now you are. Those are really powerful moments in therapy when you've got something kind of objective where you can sort of look at how far someone has come. Really builds momentum for the next phase and it really makes sure that when you're resetting your goals, you're revisiting your goals, as you should do as things change, that you can set new goals that are actually relevant and meet that person where they are in their therapy. And culturally sensitive practice, um, the area that I work on, working in Australia, has you know, 68% of our consumers were born overseas and about half often need a translator. So it's with some of the more common outcome measures, they're available in translation. And it's important to have um, for standardised measures cross-cultural validity shown. 
So it's not just enough to get it translated into another language or put into another form to fit in to, with cross-cultural needs. It's got to be validated because you don't know what a translation saying really unless you're bilingual. And that's a huge thing. If you're a bilingual OT, you have superpower. Um, I wish I was bilingual. Um, but, you know, if you're using one of the more frequently used or more common outcome measures, the translation may already have been done. So, you know, some of the really big quality of life scales, for example, like HUDAS, has been translated into 80-something languages, and you can just take those and use them. So look for those options. So, so what are we scared of? These are the quotes I commonly hear when I'm talking to OTs about outcome measurement, and here are my responses. So what if it shows what we're doing doesn't work? So it's kind of that fear-based thing of, oh, we don't want to do it because what if it shows us as the imposters we all seem to think we are? Well, then you stop using an ineffective treatment or approach. So, and that's, I'm not saying that's easy to do, but if your outcome message shows that it's actually not working to do this, do something else or, you know, don't subject people to something that's not going to work. Either people saying myself or my clients, we don't have time to fill in an outcome measure. We're very rushed. You know, time is short. That's true. But when you're going through that process, choose an outcome measure that's feasible. So choose one that's short. Choose a brief version. An outcome measure, some outcome measure is better than none at all. And clients might surprise you. So what we've been doing studies this year about the DB3, the Doing, Being, Becoming, Belonging scale, a lot of the feedback from OTs was, oh, patient's not going to do it. It's 46 questions. It's too hard. Patients completed all of the DB3s and were quite happy with it and gave really positive feedback. OTs weren't completing their side of um, the deal in terms of completing COP and paperwork and things like that because they didn't have time. So just because you don't have time as an OT doesn't mean your, your um, client's not going to make time to fill it in for you and give you the information. And sometimes outcome measures collect that information more efficiently than a semi-structured interview can. The one up the top I get all the time, outcome measures can't possibly capture the complexity of occupation. True, I 100% agree. But you don't have to use just one. Um, sometimes people think you've got to just choose one and it'll cover everything. No one outcome measure can cover everything. You can have more than one. You might use them at different points in your patient's journey through your service. And finally, it won't mean anything to the team or my colleagues. They just wouldn't understand. OTs say this all the time. Nobody understands us. Nobody knows what we do. Well, that's our fault because we don't communicate what we do terribly well sometimes. Give your colleagues a chance. Give them some feedback. Show them what the outcome measures that you've used are saying. They probably will understand it. Maybe not to the depth that you do, but they'll get the gist. And use it as an opportunity to promote OT. So that, as I said before, the AMPS was really good with that. Um, it's a bit more biomedical in the way that it's presented, but it gave me lots of opportunities to promote OT and say, this is what we look at, this is what's important to our patients. So that's it. These are the resources. I'll leave that up for a little while so people can um, pause the video and get all the resources up. But thank you for listening. If you liked this episode and want to check out more, head over to OccupiedPodcast.com or search Occupied Podcast in your favorite podcasting app. If you have thoughts or reflections on the topics discussed today, please do get in contact. We'd love to hear from you. 
And lastly, if you got some value from this and you want to help us out, like, subscribe, and share it with a friend. Remember, be good to yourself, be good to others, and always keep occupied.